0: The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now.
1: Hey everyone, this is Patrick. Thank you for tuning in this week. Today, my guest is Michael Becker. Michael is a principal of the SPI advisory firm, And also the host of the Multifamily Investing Podcast. You can check him out at multifamilyinvestingshow.com. I'm also going to post links to his social media as well as the website on our show notes. So you can check out our show notes on the podcast page, which is thewealthstandard.com. Now, I wanted to have Michael on for a few reasons. First, I had Ken McElroy on a few episodes back speaking about what's going on in the economy in multifamily investing, but I wanted to have Michael on as well to emphasize some points that Kenny and I talked about then in that show. Many real estate investors start out excited, they see potential, they see opportunity, but it becomes a job of sorts, hence the word active. So ultimately, what I've seen is people gravitate toward more passive types of investment. Now, multifamily investment is an excellent way for accredited investors mostly to invest for cash flow in a passive way. Now, the second reason is I believe our economy is shifting. Richard Duncan was on a few episodes back and we spoke a lot about what's going on in the economy, what's likely to happen, what's happening and it's causing some seismic shifts of sorts you're having some big capital flows impact things you also have emigration people moving from state to state based on the ability to work remotely leaving high cost of living areas high tax areas and you also have just emotion that's driving investments up some driving some investments down you know fundamentals are kind of out the window And there's a lot more, of course. So multifamily is an ideal way to capitalize on some of these shifts. Obviously, it's dependent on the market, but I wanted to have Michael on because his specialty is Texas. You know, I look at the economy, I look at human nature, right? And it's not a straight line, right? It's not always predictable. In fact, I don't think it's predictable that often. Obviously, there's variables that can lead to outcomes at the same time. Humans are odd where they make decisions that are irrational and subsequently cause their behavior, what they do to not be a straight line, but to be more of a curved line. And right now we're seeing that with a lot of movement out of high income tax states like California into states like where I'm at in Utah, Nevada, Arizona. And obviously Texas, which is a no income tax state. And this movement is going to continue. That's just how people behave when there's more money taken from them, where there's a high cost of living. And so I believe that Texas is just a very interesting economy and there are a lot of people that are moving there. So there's additional benefits, you know, to multifamily investing. Obviously there's risks. So. Make sure you your due diligence, but uh, I've known Michael for several years. I think you're going to really enjoy the interview and make sure you go check his podcast out and learn more about investing passively in multifamily. Thanks guys. Taking a break from the show, you know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I love meeting leaders of successful ventures who discover an idea, formulate the business and then execute. You'd assume that they know how to structure their personal finances. I believed that too, but I was wrong. Entrepreneurs are never taught to effectively manage their wealth to work alongside their business and lifestyle. All of that work, effort, toil, and time wasted. Entrepreneur 101 is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy that works so that success is not a flash in the pan, but lasting the spirit of the entrepreneur doesn't have to be compromised register for the entrepreneur 101 course today for free at the wealthstandard.com forward slash e n t that's echo november tango the wealthstandard.com forward slash e n t hey michael it's awesome to
2: have you on first off congrats on uh, your new podcast yeah, thanks for having me on, Patrick. It's been a while. I think last time we were in the middle of the Caribbean somewhere, last time I saw you. We were. It's a totally different world then, even though it was just a couple of years <laughs> on ago. On a boat with other people and everything, right? Cruise ships.
1: Yeah, I wonder what's going to happen with that whole industry. But we're not going to talk about cruise ships today. We're going to talk about <laughs>
2: multifamily investing so maybe first is talk about your new podcast. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So I've uh, been the co-host of the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast for many years. And last year in 2020, started a, a new show called The Multifamily Investing Show with Michael Becker. It's a, a video audio show done in a studio, really focusing on uh, pretty high-level guests and in the multifamily industry, brokers, owners that own you know tens of thousands of units. So really, uh, if you're an apartment nerd, it's probably a uh, a place for you. So we uh, really talk about the industry and all the various things that, uh, that go into it. It's an interesting time, right? Obviously
1: with COVID, housing has been shaken up. Markets have been shaken up because of relocation. A lot of companies are moving to kind of a hybrid or full on remote working environment, which makes a lot of sense. People have figured that dynamic out. Maybe speak to what you're seeing with regards to occupants of multifamily apartment complexes and what the behavior is of people and maybe reference specifically Texas, because I know Texas is the recipient of a lot of uh, immigration.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's important You know, to talk about the perception I have or the view I have of the world is coming from you from Dallas, Texas, and we own multifamily properties in Dallas, Austin. We're just now kind of expanding in San Antonio. So that's what my lens is of the world is is kind of colored with. And we've done about 10,000 units in the last little less than a decade or so. We own, uh, we own about 6,500 units, give or take, as I talked to you today, between Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin is where we're really focused. And, and I think that's really matters because if I'm sitting to you, talking to you from New York City or San Francisco, I probably have a a different lens of the world than, than what I do sitting from there Dallas be a few and... sweat beads on your forehead. Most likely. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's funny. We're kind of in this like backwards world in, in a lot of ways where generic suburban multifamily in Dallas, Fort Worth trades at lower cap rates than then multifamily on the Island of Manhattan does right now. And whatever world have you been in where Manhattan Island has a higher cap rate than, uh, you know, than what does generic Dallas does. I mean, that just doesn't make sense in historical context, but it's been, it's been an interesting year. We're kind of you know at the end of Q1 right now, 2021. And this time last year, I'm just stuck in my house and wondering if we're going to collect rent in, in April because everything really started shutting down mid-March last year. And we're every day kind of wondering if we're going to collect 50% of our rent or 60% of our rent. Well, uh, the reality turned out to be much, much better. I mean, we were probably in a normal month going into COVID. We probably have about 1% of our scheduled rents, Patrick B. Delinquent, or are, are non-collectible. So we'd collect 99% or better. And, you know, kind of the early months, we we went from, you know, 99% to about 97, 96%. And the worst it got was probably around Christmas time, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we got to about 95% collected, about five, maybe 6% delinquent, kind of portfolio-wide, in Dallas, Fort Worth. And so that's not great, obviously, but it's certainly manageable. And then we've seen actually an uptick as we get into Q1. I mean, you know, seasonally, a lot of our tenants, you know, every year around Christmas time, they prioritize buying Christmas gifts over paying rent. So that's a, a normal kind of high watermark for, for delinquency, anyways. But uh, we're doing pretty well and we're, you know, occupancy's is full. We're 95 plus across the portfolio. Over you know over six thousand units average, and that's uh, you know higher than what it has been you know so the last several years. Places are full. We do have a, a small contingency of folks within our units that are you know multiple months behind, and they have the uh, eviction moratoriums. You know, most people probably have uh, heard our red headlines about the CDCs put some eviction moratoriums in, and as we recorded, it, it's just about to expire. But oh, I think we anticipate the Biden administration extending that, but kind of counteract that, we've been seeing some of the stimulus money from the December $900 billion stimulus bill. And then that was added on with the most recent $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, some rental assistance. So we're kind of in the process of probably collecting, I'm assuming we're going to collect 75, 80% of that large balances that we otherwise would have evicted those residents. I think 80, you know, 75, 80% of that will probably be collectible, Patrick, which uh, you know, mentally we've written that money off uh, months ago. And so it's going to be kind of like a windfall, to be honest with you. And I guess just magic money comes out of nowhere and maybe there'll be no ramifications. Well, I guess we'll, we'll see what the real world ramifications are. Well, it's one of those give and takes, right? It's like that when you put those eviction
1: provisions in there, even though people might be able to pay their rent, they're not, right? I think the mortgage industry from those who owned homes, being able to go into forbearance without having to be foreclosed on, people may have had the capacity to pay their mortgage, yet- took advantage of that. So I think that dynamic is interesting too and I don't think if they include those elements of the stimulus bill where they would pay back landlords it would have been yeah, definitely weighted in the favor of tenants and would really hurt landlords but you know it's obvious that they put those different points in the bill to pay back landlords for the bill that they were paying over the course of time. But maybe Michael maybe speak to the role that multifamily is playing in society today. Right, big apartment complex. Who's the tenant? Why is there demand? Where are we at with the cycle of demographics and you know the demand,
2: especially in Texas for housing, specifically apartments? Yeah. I mean, it's a variety of uh, sources for demand ever, you know, anywhere from just kind of young people right out of college or, you know, young working professionals all the way to empty nesters and a whole bunch kind of in between. I mean, it's, you know, really kind of cross current of of all society uh, types and depending on the type of asset you own. And we own anywhere from kind of workforce housing to brand new class A stuff. So we see a little bit of everything, but, you know, typically in your workforce housing, it's a lot of like blue collar type tenants, people that work manual jobs, construction, you know, maybe a Starbucks or your coffee in the morning to uh, the nicer newer stuff where, you know, kind of rent or buy by choice more than necessity, where if they, you know, maybe either want to be in the urban core near amenities when they were open and, and active and now we're kind of starting to come back a little bit. I mean, that was a lot of like your. Gateway cities, people that want to be next to the museums and the restaurants and nightlife and et cetera. Suburban people as well, where we have a lot of suburban multifamily in my portfolio. We get some families and, you know, in dallas Fort Worth, disbursement of jobs is is not just concentrated in the urban core, it's pretty well dispersed throughout the uh, the metropolitan areas. There's a bunch of pockets of uh, employment throughout the whole region. So people want to live kind of close to those suburban jobs. So it's a little bit of everything and kind of seeing uh, demand is pretty insatiable. And a lot of that demand is driven here locally by the immigration that that we're seeing. A lot of the corporate relocations that have kind of taken from the higher tax states, you know, predominantly California. We see a lot of California reloads to uh, to Texas uh, from big corporations, and then they bring people and or they bring jobs and hire people locally. And so we've got a little bit of a transitory population. A lot of people kind of come into the market they don't typically buy a house. A large segment of the population doesn't buy a house out of the gate. They go rent for a year or two until they kind of realize that they want to, one, stay in the area, and then, to find out what part of town fits their lifestyle best. And then being such a large metropolitan area, I mean, we have like 7.7 million people, I think, at this point, We're the fourth largest metro in the country, and which should surpass Chicago in the next you know, 10 to 15 years. There's a lot of cross market movement as well. So people will move from this part of town to that part of town. Austin, which is the other market I I focus on, is definitely a little bit younger city than Dallas Fort Worth. Even you get a lot of more tech jobs, a lot of uh, a little bit more liberal than the greater Dallas Fort Worth area. So a lot of people coming from the Bay Area uh, tends to relocate to Austin and. Uh, that tends to be a little bit more higher renter-concentrated market than even, even Dallas Fort Worth. So some markets are a little bit different, but I mean, it's really a cross-current of all all populations uh, across uh, the country are all, all demographics across the country. But you see a lot of younger people, you know, not married. And then the people, I think the natural delay of people getting married, kind of get older and older. We tend to see uh, renter demographics, you know, say people stay in the renter pool a little bit longer than maybe they would have 15, 20 years ago when you and I were probably renting our first apartments before we got married and had houses.
1: Well, Michael, maybe speak to how does someone invest in apartment buildings? Like there's clearly an opportunity, especially in in Texas, especially with the demand coming in most likely is not going to end anytime soon. How does someone invest? I mean, obviously you have some of the, you know, institutional type of investments like real estate investment trusts, and you're starting to see more kind of crowdfunding opportunities. What are the different ways? What are the predominant ways? And maybe speak to the way in which you've learned to set up investments so that people can
2: invest. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I think it's anywhere from mom and pop kind of landlording, where you go buy a ten-unit deal with your own money and kind of run it and collect rent yourself, and you know maybe uh, fix a leaky toilet yourself, things like that, <laughs> all the way to you know very sophisticated institutional ownership groups that are you know publicly traded REITs you know, best uh, in institutional quality properties and everything in between. And we're sort of in the in-between, Patrick, where I'm like an apartment syndicator is kind of what I think of myself. We do private equity. We raise capital from high net worth individuals. I know you had uh, Ken McElroy on recently, our, our mutual friend and do very similar model to what he does, where we go raise from high net worth individuals, $100,000 at a time. So the syndication model is really very, very popular nowadays. And it's much more popular than you know 10 or so years ago when I got started. The crowdfunding was just kind of starting the jobs and jobs act. I think it was in 2012 when that came out, which allowed you to raise money from people you don't have a pre-existing and substantive relationship with. So you can do advertising. And that's when all those crowdfunding portals popped up but you know what i found through my using uh, i don't know 250 million 300 million equity that we raised over the last decade or so People do business with people they know, like, and trust. So you can try to have all this technology, which which is great to be efficient. But at the end of the day, if they don't, you know, one, get to know who you are, and then two, get to know, like, and trust you and find you credible, they're not going to invest in your deals. So a lot of it is going to different real estate investing clubs. You know, we have a podcast, like like you mentioned. Referrals are a big thing. So just getting out there and getting networked and and knowing people and getting kind of referrals. That's really where we kind of source most of the people that invest with us. And then from there, I mean, we take all sorts of different types of uh, investment from cash. People have money, you know, via their trust, LLCs, and then retirement's a big, big chunk of that as well. A lot of people invest through self-directed IRAs or solo 401ks, and they kind of get it out of the financial system, the main street. Are the main uh, mainstream financial system through Wall Street and kind of put in alternative investments, quote unquote, like multifamily syndications or the like. So that's really kind of how it is. It's really evolved quite a bit with the uh, the crowdfunding platforms. You can take that software and raise money pretty efficiently. It's all virtual through our online portal, and you fill out paper electronically, wire it in. It's really streamlined. Where we first started out, you had to kind of. Email someone something, they print it off, hand fill it, scan it or fax it back to you. And it's a lot more laborious Been kind of a good transition from a technological standpoint and really uh, moved the industry forward quite a bit.
1: As you're raising money, as you're raising the private capital, where's the focus been? Are there opportunities that exist that you're buying into? Or are you buying into kind of dilapidated complexes that you fix up? Uh, or especially based on demand, are you seeing opportunities to actually develop you know, ground up projects?
2: Yeah, I think everything in the above is something that works. What we focused on when we first started out, we did a lot of workforce housing, Patrick. So think uh, Texas, uh, think like 1960s, 1970s. That's kind of the when we first started seeing large-scale multifamily uh, properties built in the region, generally speaking. So that's kind of like most of our older stock. We're not like New York. Where you can buy a hundred plus year old building because you know, Texas didn't have very many people hundred years ago because we didn't have AC. So most of our apartment <laughs> stock is a lot younger than say if you're in the Northeast, then their C class stuff might be hundred years old, where our stuff is you know forty or fifty years old. I mean, just buying that, renovating it, increasing the rents through uh, renovations. That was very very popular, still is today. We, that's where we kind of focused. And then over the last, uh, you know, almost decade now, we've been kind of slowly transitioning, selling kind of older stuff, buying newer, better, bigger. And that's been kind of a function of the marketplace where when I started out, there used to be a larger spread and the rates of returns you can get by buying older, tougher deals compared to newer deals and commercial real estate and multifamily included trade on on cap rates is what we call it, capitalization rates. So it's basically like your unleveraged return. So if I were to buy a building that produces $100,000 in net operating income, so all my income that I get in, less all my operating expenses, excluding my debt, if I I had it produced $100,000, I bought it on a on a ten cap. I would pay a million dollars for that hundred thousand dollar income stream. And if I bought it on a five cap, I'd pay two million dollars for that same income stream. So my rate of return would either be ten percent if I paid a million, or five percent if I paid two million. So what happened ten years ago to today is those cap rates used to be maybe three percentage point spread between the top of the grade and the bottom of the grade. So I'd pay like an eight cap for a C class deal when I started, and a five cap for an A class deal. Now those cap rates are basically on top of each other. Where you know most of these caps are, you know, somewhere around four percent today in Texas, were irrespective of location, quality, et cetera. So to me, it doesn't make as much sense to pay the same or similar cap rate for something built in the '70s that I can for a brand new deal. So we've been kind of trading up and buying bigger, better, nicer things and getting similar cap rates. So that's kind of been the evolution of our. Business over the last decade or so, and it's really been a pretty good trade for us. And but you know, developing it, I mean, people keep moving here, so we need to supply more housing because there's a demand for it, especially in the Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin markets where I predominantly focus. So, I think that if, if done well and done right, that certainly is a good business model as well. You have different levels of risk because you start a project today and it's two years later before you actually start leasing units and collecting rent. So a lot of things can happen in between then. And you get, you know, like uh, you hear the headlines here recently, all the input costs, labor, land, lumber in particular are all going up. So, you know, you could start a project with certain economics and then lumber, which is maybe 15, 20% of your cost, could double. And then that could blow your profit out pretty quick. Speak to the economics of
1: interest rates too, because obviously you're not buying these things cash, right? You're raising private equity, but then you're utilizing mortgage, you're utilizing debt. And from what I recall, that's your background, right? Is where you started in really the the financing side of multifamily. But what's the market like right now, and why is that helped with the opportunity in multifamily?
2: Yeah, that's right. My professional background is in commercial real estate lending. So the last part of my my banking career, I just focused on multifamily lending, and that's kind of how I uh, cut my teeth in the business. And uh, you know, one thing I've learned from being a banker a long time, and now being a, a borrower for a long time, it's always changing. It's always uh, whatever today's environment is. It's always kind of changing over time. You got certain principles that are kind of timeless, but at the end of the day, the markets are always shifting. Where the multifamily space, the uh, the agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, are. The two largest lenders, not only in a single family space, but they're the largest lenders in the multifamily space as well. And, you know, last year, if you're talking to me last year, the only lenders that were loaning money this time last year were the agencies with Fannie and Freddie because of a mandate to do it. And this time last year, all the other lenders basically shut off. I want to just say it was like impossible, but it was next to impossible to get a loan that wasn't a, an agency loan. There's just so much uh, fear and uncertainty in the marketplace. So just kind of, turned off. So, so for the better part of 2020, if you wanted to get by a multifamily property, you were going to get most likely a uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. So uh, they have these caps that are mandated by the regulator, FHFA, and so they started like getting full because that was the only game in town. And so to kind of slow the demand, they started increasing their spreads. They, they charge on their interest rates over their indexes, their tenure, treasury, or LIBOR, depending on which would float it or you fix it. So they've become less and less competitive. And at the same time, there's the alternative lenders like your banks, your life insurance companies. And they have some like debt funds out there which are pretty pretty prominent and popular those were completely on the sidelines. Now they started loaning money and then they realized that they didn't loan any money in 2020 or they're way, way behind their projected goals. They need to get some assets out. So they started getting a lot more competitive on the leverage that they are offer and their interest rates and their fees, et cetera. So they've been you know trying to win the business. So it's been kind of... The marketplace right now is shifting and we're doing a couple of deals right now. We just did a, a bank loan and we're about to do a life insurance bridge loan right now where six months ago, it would 100% been a Freddie Mac loan uh, where today it's not. It's always ever evolving. And that's, that's one of the the things you need to stay, stay on top of and which kind of separates the good from the better within the industry is kind of paying attention to the debt, because I mean, it's typically, you know, 65, 75% of the capital stack with the remainder, you know, 75% debt, 25% equity. So it's a, a pretty large part of the business and staying on top of that's uh, certainly key and it's always evolving and ever changing. But the, the multifamily space is kind of the darling of uh, the commercial real estate industry. So we get. Um, you know, the most favorable terms, relative to say, like an office building or a retail building or God forbid, a hotel, they have much inferior debt markets than than what we have in the multifamily space so it really helps uh, the returns. And then in the environment that we've been in for you know really hell uh, the last twelve years, I guess, <laughs> and in particular the last you know last year, we've seen extremely low interest rates and uh, it really makes these uh, the, the returns you can get on your assets go up quite a bit. So that's why we've been seeing these cap rates kind of get lower and lower because people are able to pay more for that same income stream because their cost of capital is lower, so it's they can less. produce similar returns even if they have to pay more just because the debt market is so low right now. And the last uh, last quarter, really, the first quarter of 2021, we've seen rates kind of tick back up a little bit on the long end of the curve, but the short end... Your LIBOR, your sofer indexes are, you know, basically one basis point and eleven basis point, respectively, right now. So basically zero. So all these, uh, all these adjustable rate mortgages we took out a couple of years ago, I'm mean, we're just absolutely printing money on those deals, Patrick, because these, uh, these, these indexes are basically zero, zero, and we have many, many loans out that have a, a sub two percent interest rate right now on them that we took out two, three years ago. So it's so, know, yeah, basically free money, which is unbelievable. Well, you know, Richard
1: Duncan, and I had him on recently, and he was talking about the just massive amount of excess reserves that banks are carrying. And it's just going to continue for quite some time as far as 2021 is concerned. So yeah, the interest rates are definitely going to keep at that low. end. Michael, maybe let's wrap up with two points. Maybe describe what you're seeing in some of the stimulus bills in regards to multifamily. I know we talked briefly, Touched on you know how eviction moratoriums were in place, but now part of the stimulus is to essentially pay back those missed rents, maybe speak to that, and then other provisions you're seeing and some of the more you know the recent one one point nine trillion dollar bill and then maybe at the end, speak to your typical investor like what are they looking for, what's their financial profile just so listeners of the show can identify with that and potentially reach out to you
2: and learn more about multifamily or at least start listening to your podcast. Sure, yeah. With the $900 billion stimulus act passed in the late 2020, that year marked, I think, about $25 billion approximately for rental assistance within that uh, that greater bill. And that money was then distributed to the states, and the state and local housing authorities would then disperse that money. So it took for a little while to get the programs kind of going. And in February, they started kind of rolling out in Texas, and every state's a little bit different. Every state has a little bit different rules. But basically, they were allowed to go back to March of last year, and three months forward. So, you know, at this point you could get, if, if someone had, had not paid me rent in the whole year, I could get a whole year's worth of back rent plus three months forward to kind of get caught up. If there's some paperwork to fill out that both from the property and on uh, the resident side, so that's kind of prove that they lost their income, et cetera. And as I mentioned, we had uh, over 64, 6,500 units, whatever we have today, we had somewhere around 600,000 and accrued accumulated deferred rent over that twelve month period. I mean, that's, you know, relatively insignificant on a percentage basis and in, in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, it's a lot of money in the real world, right? I mean, it's still it's still a lot of money. And we anticipate that we're probably going to collect you know, $450,000, of that. So I think that would probably just tell you, like I said, it's about 75%, 80% of that. I'll tell you there's probably 20 to 25% fraud within the system where these residents that are could have otherwise paid just said that they didn't have a job and they filed a fraudulent D- CDC declaration to stay in eviction, basically. That's what I think uh, roughly I'm, I'm kind of deducing from what we're about to experience. So then those people ultimately be evicted and credit ruined, et cetera, things like that, because they can't produce the paperwork that showed they lost their job. So there's probably somewhere around that type of fraud in the entire system with all the stimulus stuff is probably what Michael Becker's uh, cowboy math is here. So that's how much waste is really kind of out there and I know you said Richard Duncan uh, doesn't believe there's going to be inflation and he thinks rates are going to be low. And I, I concur that I think rates are going to be low. There's so much excess liquidity in the system, it's really going to drive it down. And certainly on the short end of the curve, you're, you're floating adjustable rate uh, mortgages and and you know your one two two, two-year treasury rates will, will stay low for a while. And we've been seeing a little pressure on the 10-year the treasury, but uh, I don't think that's going to go very far either. I think we're probably range bound somewhere around where we are today for a period of time. And if it starts going, I think the Fed will, will start doing... Yield curve control and really start buying the long end of the bonds and and keep it from going. But I do believe there is inflation. I think they just mask it with having a flawed calculation if you would, if they would calculate CPA like they did back 40 50 years ago I think we'd see a lot of inflation cuz you look at all the input costs and all the the real things of the world oil and lumber and you know try to get an appliance package right now I mean they're they are doubled in the last you know 6 7 years wow. uh, to get the same basic appliance so all these input costs are going up and I can promise you looking at my portfolio with 95% occupancy and uh, all this back rent about to get paid and all these people moving here and the input costs build a new multifamily product going up. We're raising rents right now. I mean, I think we see in, in the markets I play in, we had pretty much a flat year. Austin was probably negative two percent. Dallas was probably positive one percent. And rental rate growth kind of as a market as a whole in 2020. In spite of everything, we're, you know, it's relatively uh, tame. So it's pretty flat. I think we see, you know, kind of five to six percent rent growth in 2021. And I think we're wow. seeing that right now in real time when I'm trading out my leases, my old leases to my new leases, that's kind of what we're seeing, and we need to because these the places are full, and so we're able to kind of push rents right now. So that's kind of what I'm seeing. So I kind of I believe there's really inflation out there, and the things that matter like housing and buying a car or trying to you know drive a new worth oil. I think there's there's real inflation there, and uh, I don't see what's going to stop it. And you know, seeing the pricing of these things, Patrick, it feels like we're basically wrapping up first quarter of 2021. I mean, it feels like pricing's moved twenty thousand a unit, you know, citywide, both in Austin and Dallas, in the last three months. Because there's so much capital coming here, it's just insatiable the amount of demand. Because all these people that were previously investing in, you know, the coastal markets are starting to kind of look in the center of the country and Arizona, Florida, Texas, Georgia, the Carolinas, those are kind of on the the in markets and, you know, California and New York and Seattle. Some of these are kind of on the out markets. So that money's coming here and a lot of money's kind of rotating out of If you want to be commercial real estate, it's hard to invest in hospitality or retail or even office. So they're kind of rotating out of those sectors more into industrial and multifamily. And so it's just, there's more and more money chasing it at the same time they printed what 25 or so percent of the money in circulation was generated in the last 12 months or something like that. So there's just all this money sloshing around and it's it's going into risk assets like commercial real estate and it's it's disproportionately going to multifamily. We're seeing prices kind of accelerate. You have
1: the dynamic of when somebody moves from California per se, first off tax savings, second, you know, they're going from $3500 a month for an apartment to two grand a month for an apartment or or maybe less. And so you have the kind of built-in flexibility
2: where raising rents by five to 6% will be a no brainer for most. That's right. That's right. That's what we're seeing. So, I'm still pretty bullish on Texas Multifamily. I mean, we, we have done well. And, and that's one of the things talking to investors that have been with us for a while. They, the last, uh, I would say, leading up to the COVID lockdowns, people would talk to me about kind of what happened in the prior decade, the, the teens, basically. And what seemed like to me was in, in the Dallas Fort Worth and uh, the workforce housing space in particular, rents pretty much doubled in the last decade and prices tripled. And so, you know, the prices tripled because the rents doubled and then the cap rates compressed, you know. So, some combination. Those two things, and they've just—it hasn't stopped. It really—you know—we went on hibernation for about three months, and then got right back at it. And prices didn't really move at all. I mean, if you had the ability and the the guts to buy something in that two-three month period in April or May, maybe you got a three to five percent discount if you bought it in that two-month period. I mean, someone was willing to sell, but most everyone else kind of took their ball and went home for a few months, and then kind of put their head back up and. Things were kind of okay in in, in the multifamily space, at least. So, you know, most people that come to us, your your second-party question was, you know, we we get a a diverse investor base, you know, a lot of mostly high net worth people from various industries. Either they just have a good income, make, you know, know, mid over six figures and accumulate some money and kind of want to get a return to, you know, we have some business owners, doctors, you know, people, a lot of people that pay high income taxes, especially in, the coastal markets and the, you know, where you not only pay the federal income tax, you pay California, not only Uncle Sam, but Uncle uh, Gavin, I guess, out in California. And so they come to uh, family multifamily space and they get some pretty good tax savings with the depreciation that the law, the way it's currently written, at least is pretty favorable for the multifamily industry. So we see quite a bit of that business owners. And then you see a lot of people that even have bought, you know, some commercial real estate that appreciated and they want to stay into the space. So it's a diverse a mix of people. And we, We just finished up our tax returns uh, not too long ago. We did, I think, 1,350 K-1s. For the 2020 tax year. And uh, that's, you know, a lot of that. Paper. We probably have seven or so hundred unique investors that invested with us and, and kind of growing by the day, seemingly. it's uh, It's been a good business, really bullish on multifamily in Texas. And I don't see what is going to stop the immigration, what's going to stop the price appreciation. Cause I think rents are, you know, rents are going to grow and I'll just ever fuel it. I'm going up and I don't see how they can let interest rates really rise uh, to any material respect. And if they do let interest rate rise, it's going to make single family housing. even that much more expensive to own, which will then further kind of drive rental rates. I think it's uh, all things being equal, you know, there's a world full of bad options from an investment standpoint. If you want to get some yield, you got to take some level of risk. I and mean, there's no real, you can't go get a 5% one year CD like you could have. Fifteen years ago. So, if you want any sort of yield, you got to put risk, either in stock market or some investment like I do, or you know, various other things out there. So, I think uh, all things being equal, is, you know among the the better uh, asset classes out there, which is why we dedicated my career to it. Well, Michael, thanks
1: for your time and thanks for sharing your expertise. We'll put all your contact info in the show notes. But what's the best way listeners can follow you, learn more about multifamily investing?
2: Yeah, appreciate having me on. Uh, Hopefully we see each other before uh, for the next cruise sometime. But uh, uh, yeah, the best way really is to go to a company's website, which uh, my company's SPI Advisory. So it's just uh, www.spiadvisory.com. It's spiadvisory.com there. There's a contact us form. You fill that out. And we're happy to send out information about what we do and uh, potentially work with us. All right, Michael, thank
1: you again. And yeah, what a crazy time to be an investor. At the same time, there's lots of opportunities out there if you know what you're looking for. Thank you for listening to The Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us.